0: Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and yes, some not so successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit.
1: Today we have a real treat because Dennis Buck, although he is now on the sell side as an M&A advisor, spent a big part of his career working on the buy side as an advisor with an M&A division of a Fortune 500 company, and then in private equity, and finally with an investment company, all on the buy side. This has enabled him to see the world through a different set of glasses than most M&A advisors that we interview on this podcast. Today, he shares some of his buy-side deal stories that provides interesting insights on what sellers need to understand by giving you a glimpse into what buyers are thinking, and if you are a buyer, some interesting takeaways that can facilitate your deals. The first transaction that Dennis shares with us is why the FBI, DEA, and state regulatory agencies descended on a business and why this didn't bother the right buyer. Listen for the takeaways on this deal that every seller should know. Another transaction deals with how the wrong business intermediary can create mistrust and completely derail a deal in the blink of an eye, making it impossible for a buyer to acquire a business, even though it is a great business. Then Dennis shifts his focus to how a multi-million dollar liability that the seller was completely unaware of and didn't know existed in his business was uncovered in due diligence and how the buyer structured the deal to mitigate this liability to get an impossible deal done. This is a nugget that every seller should keep in mind when they position their business for sale. Finally, Dennis shares how a deal went from the first phone call to closing in 10 days flat. The big takeaway on this deal emphasizes why motivation is the grease that oils the skids to get deals done when there is a deadline involved. All in all, if you are an entrepreneur thinking of selling your business, this is a must-listen to episode. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with Dennis Buck. Dennis, would you take just a few minutes and share a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're located, so our audience can get a good feel for who they're listening to today?
2: Thanks, Marvin. My name's Dennis Buck. I am a managing director at Chapman Associates. I am located in Baltimore City, Baltimore. And i uh, just uh, happy that I've uh, been able to connect with Marvin and uh, tell a few stories.
1: Okay. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the buy and sell side? Which side do you fall on?
2: So I I currently fall on the sell side, but I actually came up on the buy side. I started my career more than 15 years ago working for uh, a large publicly owned Fortune 500 company company. Going around and acquiring privately owned businesses for them. Over the years, I over the years I've worked for a couple of publicly owned companies. I have also worked for private equity owned platform companies. Um, but I have now moved to the sell side and work as a business broker for Chapman.
1: Okay, cool. As you bring that orientation of both the buy and sell side to the table and that you're currently working on the sell side why don't we talk a little bit about some of those transactions that may have had some both buy and sell side components to it so our audience can kind of get a feel for viewing the world a little bit differently as you look at these different transactions so why don't we start out with a transaction that you were involved in maybe a number of years ago that had some of those components to it so why don't you tell us a little bit about one of the companies you worked with in the past
2: it was actually one of the, the first transactions that I was fully involved with and, and worked on on my own. It was originally a long-term care pharmacy that was owned by a husband and wife. They had run the business for a number of years. They were both pharmacists.
1: When you say a number of years, does that mean 10, 15, what?
2: They they'd run it for probably 30 years together.
1: Okay. That's a long time <laughs> to be in the pharmacy business, huh?
2: Um, for some people, yes, for others, no, um, (laughs) there are some people out there who've run them for a very, for even longer than that. Um, but the story here, the husband and wife owned the business. Uh, the wife had actually gone off and started her own business, um, separate from pharmacy business. Uh, the husband passed away.
1: I assume this was somewhat unexpected.
2: It was not totally unexpected, but he had been, my understanding is he had been sick and, but they had a staff to run the business and she would still go in, oversee things every once in a while. But this was not something that she was, you know, running day to day.
1: So how many employees did they have? Do you have any feel for that?
2: Um, I've forgotten the exact number, but it was more than 20. And they had a couple of employees that had been, you know, that were actually running the business and had been there for a number of years.
1: So this is not necessarily the neighborhood, small pharmacy on the corner type of operation. This is a pharmacy with a multi-million dollar revenue base.
2: Yes, it is. Um, It is far larger than your corner Rite Aid or CVS.
1: Yeah, um, okay. it is
2: more of a warehouse distribution business. The story starts that after a few, after a couple of years, things that were seemingly going just fine, and then she realizes that she had a problem with the business.
1: So, th- this for context here. This is after her husband passed away. She has got this other business she's involved in. And she kind of checks in once in a while because she has these long-term employees that have been running the business. Is that kind of how the th- the story is evolving? Correct.
2: Now? And that and, and, and that's where we and that's kind of where um, this starts. Suddenly one day, and it's a pharmacy business. They have they distribute you know, scheduled narcotics, and she gets a call. One of her employees has been arrested selling oxycodone out the back of the pharmacy.
1: And this was a total surprise. She just got a phone call one day.
2: Yes. And this and this was a total surprise. She had security systems, she had cameras, and she had no idea that this was going on. And now she has a major problem. This is a business that she was only tangentially involved in, wasn't involved in the day-to-day. She had another business that she was involved in and now she has issues with the state pharmacy board she has issues with the dea with the fbi with all sorts of organizations who are now asking questions and she's now having to spend her full time trying to a figure out what's going on b fix them and then figure and then c decide okay what am i going to do going forward and you know, so she gets to the so she gets through this and says, "All right." She assesses the situation and says, "I need to sell this business. I don't have. I no longer have the desire, time, to run this full time as it clearly now has to be run." And you know, what do I need to? You know, what do I do? She actually reached out to some people, including. Uh, within the pharmacy world pharmacists know each other and she reached out to somebody who she had gone to pharmacy school with had known her and her husband and had had a long-term care pharmacy that he sold and he was now working for the same company i was and so he gave her he said hey we can help i'll give you a couple numbers and we'll we'll see what we can do um, she also reached out to another gentleman who acts as a business broker and engaged him to try to sell the business. Um, and it was somebody that was recommended to her, who knew the industry, who understood the issues that she was going through and was able to help her, helped walk her through the process of, all right, you're in a special situation. This is what you're going to need to know. And this is, these are the things that you're going to have to understand in order to get this transaction done. So that's, so that's kind of where the story gets to me, where I get the, I get a call saying, Hey, you need, could you please call her? She needs to sell her pharmacy. And I was working on the buy side and, uh, You know, immediately picked up the phone and said, all right, (laughs) hi, we need to meet and I need to understand everything that's going on because I had kind of gotten a pieces of the story.
1: So in a traditional situation like this, when there are problems and you're on the buy side, that really puts up radars. Of probably a deeper dive into due diligence than you would normally do, especially when you have the DEA, the FBI, the state pharmacy board all on site, all delving in, and maybe their investigations take a long time to conclude. So, how did you on the buy side deal with something like that?
2: One, it's having the right resources and understanding what you're buying. I had the opportunity to work for a company that did a lot of acquisitions, had a designed program to do acquisitions and had the resources necessary, whether it be regulatory law firms, whether it be consultants, but people who understood, hey, we're going to go look at something. We need to be able to answer some very fundamental questions both from a, not only from a financial standpoint, but from a regulatory standpoint to make sure that we are doing everything that we need to do in order to get the transaction to not only get it completed, but integrated and with, you know, being able to go forward without having any other issues and being able to set up that structure, um, and so one of the things we were able to do is we were able to identify people, to go in, take an honest look at the business and say, all right, here's everything they're doing, here's everything we found. Here's here's where we think the original problem started. We have actually we had actually a firm of form of consultants that was comprised of former DEA agents. That this is what they did. So we were able to send them in and they were able to look at everything. And they she even showed them the security tapes that she had kept. That they were able to go in and say, All right, here's here are the issues, here's where you things you need to fix, and here's the things we need to do today before we even get closed to make sure to ensure that this doesn't happen in the future, and that once the acquisition happens. That there is no question about the cutoff of responsibility that once the acquirer buys it they are already operating at a, at a at a level that is beyond reproach because we know the dea has already come in and looked at this and there has already been a fine levied for simply allowing it to happen.
1: So before she got to you, how long was she in the process of riding the ship? Was it a matter of weeks, months, a year or what?
2: It had been a year at least.
1: Okay. So she had already done a substantial amount of work to put in additional procedures, security.
2: She had done some.
1: All right. Okay.
2: But the difference between an individual going in and doing it and a corporation who has the resources to hire a lot of people to go in and do it is different. Okay. And this and this also led her, it ultimately led her to the decision to sell because she started doing some of the work and realized that, this was no longer her passion in life to go to do this type of work.
1: So she sort of had a a shift in mindset of what she really wanted to do. And so when her mindset shifted to, well, I really need to sell this. I I don't want to do this on a day-to-day basis. That probably changed the whole complexion of a future transaction.
2: And, you know, and in this case, you know, people talk about, you know, hanging on too long and, Know watching the business go down, and you know taking a, a passive approach to owning a business and some of the pitfalls. Um, this is really an example of it wasn't so much the purchase price that got that was the issue. It was the fact that you know the business wasn't growing because she wasn't involved, and it was. It was doing well, but it was what it was.
1: So, what would be the real takeaway on this transaction if you had to boil it down to a, a sentence or two for our audience here? What would be the big takeaway?
2: The big takeaway, you know, for me out of this transaction was understanding if you're going to have, have a passive investment in your business that you own one, and she owned a hundred percent of the business that there are pitfalls and issues that can come up that have nothing to do that have a lot to do with you are not there every day and unless you have either a management that you fully trust and can keep accountable or you're willing to go in and spend the time to actually work on the business that things are going to be missed (laughs) And those things could cost you a lot of money in the end of the day.
1: Right. So it really says to our audience here is that sometimes you can hold on too long. And if you do hold on too long, or you don't have that accountability, or at least you think you have it and you really don't, it's going to cost you some money. And I guess in her case, it cost her money on probably the multiple she got for the business. Uh, She had this other business, and since she had to divert her full attention, to fixing the problem in the pharmacy, that business probably suffered and the cost her money there, as well as all the dollars on fines that she incurred and loss of income during that period of time. And it probably cost her a million, two million dollars. What would you say? I mean, just as an estimate.
2: It cost her well over a million dollars. Um, I know that the fine itself was very hefty because of the type of violation that it was, because it was an inv- a scheduled inventory violation. and But even more so, I, I think it cost her her time and it cost her a lot of stress. That something that she had thought, oh, this is running smoothly. I don't have to worry about it. Suddenly she gets hit with a tsunami of she has to worry about everything. And just, you know, even above the loss of income and the cost, um, I think the cost mentally and the stress that this put her under, she would probably have, t- she would have told you, hey, yeah, this was the- that was the worst part of it.
1: Yeah, I would imagine. So a lot of stress when you have those type of people looking over your shoulder. So I guess to summarize that takeaway then is don't hold on to your business too long. It may come back to bite you when the time is right. You may be able to exit at the top of your game instead of when it's in a downward spiral. All right, well, let's move on to another transaction that you could share with us that has some interesting twists in it.
2: Yeah, this is actually another pharmacy transaction um, and this is a transaction that, you know, is meaningful for me today, um, because it kind of shapes how I interact with my own clients now. Um, now that I, you know, after, now that I work on the sell side, um, and it is based on my interactions with a broker of a business.
1: Can you give me a little background of who this intermediary was?
2: So this was a business based in California. Um, they were located about three hours outside of a major city. Um, so they so so they they had their you know it was a family-owned business. They had their own area. They didn't have they didn't have much competition.
1: If I want to get a context, when you say family-owned, was it again the on the corner type of pharmacy in a small town, or was it what level of operation were they?
2: Um, it was a twenty-two million dollar pharmacy business. Okay, well that's not your neighborhood <laughs> that is not, pharmacy again. It, it was a you know, it, it was started by a father, it was being run by uh, a couple of the sons, and you know they had been doing it for a while and they had decided to get into other things. It had been a successful business for many years and you know the sons had other desires and priorities in their lives that they were they you know they were interested in and no longer wanted to run this pharmacy and the opportunity and they saw the opportunity hey we can we can sell the business we can go do our own things and everybody'll be happy and they hired a broker out of Oregon so
1: this is a out of state broker
2: this was an out of state broker she was a former investment banker who had gotten onto the cell who, who now was acting more as a business brokerage and was doing it on her own and had you know, somebody that we hadn't dealt with before. It was a, it was a situation they brought, you know, she called us up, sent us the teaser. Hey, you're interested. Of course we are. And, <laughs> um, and, and actually she had sent it out to a number of people, but at the end of the day, we started negotiating with her and we're trying to get a deal done because we were, we were interested in the property and the issue came up when, you know, and we'd been do, and, and the structure of it in the way that she worked is that there was a lot of communication between me and the broker. There was, and then the broker would go back to her clients, discuss stuff, come back. And we, and we work out some, you know, try to work out the details. And I started having, you know, things were slowing down. It wasn't moving fast enough. I got my boss involved and we got on a call. We spoke with her. We hammered out a lot of key issues.
1: So you're hammering these details out with the broker or with the seller? With the broker. With the broker. So the broker is really the intermediary and you you really aren't talking to the seller at any point in time here.
2: We were, and we had limited contact with the seller. We'd spoken to them a few times. They knew, the seller knew who we were. They knew our operations people in California. So we were mainly just trying to get the deal structured. And we had a call we came to an agreement with the broker on a number of items. We thought that, all right, we've got a deal here. We've got all everything in place. We will send you, you know, we'll send you the documents and we'll get this worked out.
1: So you've gone through and checked off all the deal points that are crucial on your side and the brokers agreed to everything and you're assuming that this is all being passed on.
2: And, we, and we're and we thinking, hey, we finally have a purchase agreement to get signed. Cool and so we get on a call you know, on a saturday and it's with the owners of the business with the broker me my boss and you know we're in two different time zones but you know we we were really we really wanted to get this done and you know we get on the call and within five minutes we realize there's a massive problem we start going through hey you know We've agreed to, you know, these are the things we've agreed to. And suddenly we can tell that there's silence from the owner and the broker comes back and says, oh no, we didn't agree to this. I didn't agree to that.
1: In fact, but you had negotiated all those with the broker before.
2: You had just negotiated those points two days ago. (laughs) Right. And now we're sitting here talking with the owners and trying to negotiate a new deal. And this be and we realized that the broker was not being honest with her client she had been telling her client what they wanted to hear that oh no this will work out no i can get you this you know whatever needed so that she was just trying to get the deal to get the deal done on her you know without basically getting fired and trying to blame us for any problems that were happening and it became clear that the communication between their end was a problem that there was a lack of transparency and that became a problem for us because we couldn't cl- trust the broker the seller didn't know if he could trust us because he had been working with his he'd been working with the broker and that's where his relationship was and so there was a lack of trust between him and us, and it ended up scuttling the deal for a while that you know nobody was happy.
1: Well, it really puts the seller in an awkward situation where you have this relationship with the person you've retained to help facilitate the transfer and sale of the business, and that's who you're relying on, and then you get on the phone with the actual buyer and You're hearing something entirely different. And so the seller doesn't really know who in the heck to trust, you know? So what would be the big takeaway here?
2: And, you know, for me, the takeaway, and particularly for the work that I do now, you know, the takeaway for me is I need to be super honest with my client. I need to be as transparent as possible with my client so that they can make proper decisions. And so that they don't get put into situations where there are problems, where they are surprised, um, because that only creates problems. Because I will tell you that my company put that broker on the persona non grata list, that we would not accept even accept calls or emails from her. Because we couldn't trust her to actually get a deal done.
1: (laughs) Right. And for our audience out there, anyone that's going to be selling their business and they're going to have to have an intermediary, someone that's going to help to facilitate that. You need to hire a broker that you can trust and that you can truly have this unfiltered communication with so that you know that your objectives and goals are being communicated properly. You just don't want a broker that's telling you what you want to hear because that's probably going to end badly. Well, I appreciate that insight. And again, I think it's unique because you've been on the buy side, acquired a ton of businesses over the period of your career. And now you've moved over from the buy side to the sell side. So you have this unique perspective of viewing the a transaction through both lenses. And that's a unique uh, orientation that doesn't always exist. So let's take that type of orientation and move over to a couple of transactions that had an outcome that, not like this one, that ran off of the rails, but stayed on the rails and maybe really had a good outcome.
2: Yep, and the next one was actually an oil services transaction that I worked on.
1: So oil services, why don't you peel back the ending on that a little bit more and what exact services did they provide to the oil industry?
2: It was a smallish business that was providing... Water cleaning services to on land rig sites for get oil and gas wells that were involved in fracking.
1: So as I understand it, fracking involves injecting chemically treated water into a well, the drilled well, and forcing that water down and putting pressure on it and extracting the oil from the rock formations and then pumping it back up. And so in this particular case, they cleaned that water then?
2: And then they were cleaning that water. So they owned very large centrifuges and they would send these out with several of their employees who worked on the rig site and they would clean the water on site and separate out the particles from the clean water.
1: And so in theory, I guess if you had a million gallons of water, you don't have to truck in new water all the time. You can continually reuse that water for a long time.
2: Yes, and that and, and that, uh, that was the kind of the basis for their business because when fracking sort of first started, there was a lot of trucking of water, and that becomes expensive.
1: Well, sounds like a good business.
2: It was not a bad business at all.
1: And were they just in one part of the oil fields, like in Texas or Oklahoma or someplace, or did they operate beyond that?
2: This was a, a business. It had three business owners. They were doing business in Louisiana. They had uh, contracts for sites in Louisiana, Texas, North Dakota, and I uh, believe a little bit in Ohio. And so they were all, they were kind of all over the place. And um, they were sending employees all over the place they had i think over over 100 employees and they were doing like 25 26 million dollars a year in revenue so fairly sizable little services business that their major expense was you know a little bit of capex and a whole lot of employees you
1: know capex is and in capital investment for definition purposes there. So a lot of employees, and of course, when you have employees working over state lines, that creates its own issues.
2: It does. And they were looking to sell the company. It was run by three people, one who was running the business, one who was had a separate distribution business, but it was uh, had invested money in this business and knew the oil and gas industry since he had started working in it when he was like 18. And then they had a third investor who was simply a, a you know financial investor. And they were looking to sell the business. Are you on the buy or sell side here? I was actually on the buy side on this. Okay. I was working with a company that was private equity owned. And this was one of their platform businesses that they were looking to try to do acquisitions with.
1: So would you define very quickly a platform company for our audience?
2: For private equity firms that... They will buy larger businesses, that then they will look to do what they call bolt-on acquisitions. To so they will spend you know a couple hundred million dollars to buy a business, and then they will go out and acquire smaller businesses worth only twenty million um, in order to grow the business, get into new areas make the basically make the business larger so that they can sell it at a higher multiple
1: and the reason they do that is that they can acquire smaller businesses for a lower multiple and when they bolt it on as you use that terminology it gets a higher multiple
2: that's the general idea it doesn't always work in practice like that but when it does work that's exactly how it works (laughs) and so we were We'd agreed on it the price started going through our due diligence we looked at the business and suddenly an employee issue comes up and luckily we had a good law firm we had some people who were knowledgeable about oil and gas and they discovered that there was a potential liab- employee liability on their books.
1: What type of liability? I'm going through my mind here thinking, you know, what type of liability could be a, a contingent or potential liability could be on the books? I mean,
2: and this had to do with minimum wage.
1: Well, I mean, oil workers are paid really well. I mean, they're certainly paid over minimum wage.
2: They are. But, you know, this is a situation where state laws don't necessarily conform to all businesses and business practices. Oil and gas rigs are sites where, you know, generally the people that work on them, they travel to them, they live on site, they work 12 hour shifts and they will do what is referred to a, you know, two week on one week off or three week on one week off where they will live at the site for two to three weeks and then go home and take the week off.
1: I grew up in a part of the country in South Dakota. I left a long time before they discovered oil up in North Dakota. But a lot of the people in the area I grew up in migrated up to there to work these two weeks on, two weeks off. And uh, they don't work in that for decades. It's a, a high-stressed uh, environment when you're working like that.
2: You know, and it, but it pays well. And depending on what you do, it, it is a very lucrative job. But it is not a nine-to-five job. Most state laws are based on people who work Monday through Friday, nine to five, and then get paid overtime for any extra hours.
1: I can see where this is going.
2: (laughs) And the issue came is when they brought on new employees who hadn't worked in the oil and gas services business, they were taking them out and they were training them and they were paying them a lower wage. Now, on an hourly basis, this is much higher than seven twenty-five dollars an hour. The problem came was they are working 12 hours a day. So under state laws, even though they were not required to pay them above minimum wage or above a quote-unquote time and a half, federally, they were on a state level. And what happened was was if these guys were on, you know, if the state designation was they count a two-week period and they count the, uh, the two weeks where the guys are on all the entire two weeks, that means that they are working seven days a week. So they are getting paid Monday through Friday their normal wage plus Four hours of overtime.
1: (laughs) So what what you're really saying is that because of the anomaly in their work schedule, the way the math works out is that they were periods of time where they were not being paid the minimum wage according to each state's requirements.
2: That is correct. And luckily, we had one of the lawyers had run into a similar situation and took a little bit deeper dive and discovered, hey, this could be a problem. Um, We didn't know how big the problem was.
1: So was this a problem that was going to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of dollars? I mean, because you have a, a requirement that goes back to, what, two or three years?
2: At least two or three years, depending on the state. And the... And, this, and it turned out that this wasn't a couple of hundred thousand dollars. This was more like a three and a half million dollar liability.
1: Well, that that's a big deal. That, could, that can create a deal pretty quickly.
2: Because of the, the <laughs> amounts and how far back and of the potential fines.
1: But just to be clear, this was, you discovered this in due diligence. Was the company even
2: aware of it? The company had no idea. <laughs>
1: Okay, so as on the buy-sell side, you identify this potential problem that the seller had no clue that it even existed. That's right. They hadn't done anything according to any preemptive type of structuring of how they manage their payroll to conform with state laws.
2: No. And because of the obscurity of this particular situation, because it just doesn't happen, it is extremely rare That this is an issue.
1: And the reason they weren't aware of it, I guess, is because no one had raised the issue. No one had filed a claim with the labor board or anything like that. They were just moving on like everything was great.
2: Yep. Well, and we had only discovered it because of there had been other unrelated employee Suits, where an employee had sued the employer for something other than this.
1: Yeah, I've been down that road before in some of the businesses I've been involved in, and you don't want to go there because you never win. No. Never. You don't. And uh, so I'm just curious, share with us kind of the punchline here. How did you resolve this issue? You have this big contingent, multi-million dollar liability out there. How did you get... The seller to agree to something that you were comfortable with.
2: Well, to start, we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know it was three and a half million. We had no idea.
1: But you knew it was probably a large number.
2: We just knew there was something, and so this is. And, and, and you know, this gets to kind of the point of my story: of you just need to do the work. And what ended up happening was, is I took all of their payroll data. They were still on QuickBooks, and I pulled all of their payroll data.
1: So let me understand they were doing QuickBooks. they did they have an outside uh, payroll service? Uh, no. That's interesting. It's a big company for running it on QuickBooks.
2: They, they had a lot of paper files. And so I essentially took a download of all of their payment so from QuickBooks of all of their payrolls going back five years and of every single employee they had. And rebuilt a schedule where the potential liability for each employee over time, so that we could figure out how big was the liability.
1: And this is where you came up with the three and a half million.
2: And this is where we finally came up with the three and a half million. Who those employees were to determine are these current employees, are these are these past employees, and three to determine because there's a statute of limitations, was there a way to structure something whereby we, we could essentially do what I'll call a roll-off.
1: So that statute of limitations is what, three years?
2: Um, Dependent on the state. <laughs> okay. So, which is why you had to kind of look at everybody independently, because you also had guys working in multiple states. And what we figured out was is that it involved the employees who were just being hired, and they would work for, we'll say, six months at a lower w- wage rate because they got paid on a day rate not on a necessarily hourly basis cuz they worked a 12 hour shift
1: and because they were paying lower i get it they didn't meet the requirements for minimum wage
2: but those guys they would do it for 6 months and but they would graduate up and they would get a pay bump at some point 6 months a year and so then they and so they were no longer a prop so it was only a defined period of time for certain employees and we were able to identify it. We were able to go back and create structural holdback, an additional holdback under escrow that we could roll off on a, you know, a set schedule because we knew when the statute of limitations was running out.
1: So what you're saying, a roll off under a set schedule on the statute of limitations. So after one year, so much falls off. And after two years, so much falls off. And eventually, there's no liability.
2: And eventually, the entire holdback gets paid back to the business owners.
1: So how did it work out? Was there ever a claim filed?
2: To my knowledge, there was never a claim filed.
1: So all this was was a holdback that cleared out after two or three years, and everyone was happy.
2: Well, it ended up being happy. Well, and I will tell you, they were not very happy when they heard three and a half million.
1: (laughs) I imagine so.
2: But because, because I put together a schedule and gone through every employee and was able to show them this is what the liability is, here's and explain it to them. And they could understand, okay, this is why we're structuring it this way. That there wasn't a lot of negotiation over. It it it, it turned out to be a, you know, people worried that it would be a very contentious issue. But it ended up being, here's everything we have, I will show you my math. If you have any problems with it, let me know. But this is coming from your information.
1: Well, as a seller, then the takeaway on this, at least from my perspective, Dennis, is that when you have potential issues, sometimes you just got to roll up the sleeves and do the work and don't guess. And once you have the hard data, then it's hard to argue with that data.
2: That's exactly right. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, that, that's an interesting story. So let's move on to another transaction and kind of wrap up our time together here. Tell us a little bit about a transaction that worked out well for you. And are you on the buy or sell side on this?
2: And I'm also on the buy side on this. And this is a story about speed and how fast you can get a deal done. Um, I was in a situation where I worked on a deal that we got done in 10 days.
1: So just for context, I would say that 95% of all the deals and stories that we hear on the podcast take 6, 12, 18 months to, to get done. I mean, that's a long process. So. I'm interested to hear this story.
2: And this was a situation, this was a carve-out, a nursing home business. Right,
1: explain a carve-out to our audience?
2: So a nursing home business, their primary business was owning nursing homes. They had a business that they wanted to sell in, so that they could do a separate transaction. And they, so they had a distribution business in-house that they were looking to, to monetize. And so they carved this little business out and were just going to sell it separately from their main business.
1: And this business, what type of business did they have going?
2: It, it, it was a DME distribution business. And
1: DME is?
2: Durable medical equipment. And I refer to it by an old name of, I call it a Part B business because you get reimbursed under Medicare Part B regulations. It is wheelchairs, crutches,
1: was this durable medical equipment business was it just to their own nursing homes or to everyone in general
2: it was mostly to their own but they were also outside they also had outside business okay um and it was essentially I've heard who it is a mail order business you called them they would ship you product and bill you for it fairly simple setup
1: and so they needed to sell this as you put it quote carve out that business to enable them to sell, to complete another transaction. They couldn't do what, what this business within their existing business.
2: Yes. And they were under a time crunch. <laughs> from start to close, from the first meeting that they had, the actual meeting. With you? Yes. Between the, the seller's business and a couple of executives from our business, it took 10 days to get the deal done.
1: So you're saying from the time you met face to face and 10 days later, you were in escrow signing the closing documents.
2: That is correct. <laughs> well, that <laughs> is fast.
1: <laughs> you don't, you don't get many of those.
2: You don't get many of them at all.
1: Why can you do something so fast like that? And everything else takes so long
2: for business owners. This is sometimes the benefit of selling to a strategic somebody that knows your business that has an ongoing m a program so they have resources that they are willing to dedicate to doing an acquisition and they have the resources and people both internally and you know, whether it be consultants or outside accountants etc who they can task at a on very short notice to go get work done mm-hmm.
1: So what you're really saying is that in this in, in your particular case you understood this industry you understood the niche you understood the dynamics of it because you're a buyer that deals in this space all the time and you had the resources financial resources human capital resources plus the knowledge and you're motivated they have a time requirement we I'm just curious were there other people that were approached that didn't have those resources and had to bow out because they just couldn't get it done in their timeframe?
2: Well, I will tell you, we were not their first choice of buyer.
1: <laughs> so there were other people that probably couldn't do what you could do in the 10 days.
2: Yes. And that, and that became the issue. We were, we were able to put together the people necessary. We knew what needed to be done. And so we were able to, it, it, but I will tell you, it's it was a lot of long nights in order to get it done in 10 days. And a lot of camping out and, you know, places that weren't my home. Yeah. But it goes to show that a lot of deals, they take time, you know, and there are, you know, there are just certain things you can't avoid. But if you have a really motivated seller and a really motivated buyer who has the resources, you can move mountains. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is possible. Not likely, but it's possible.
1: This is a great takeaway for our audience and who are business owners out there that if you are going to sell and you find a strategic, there are real advantages of working with a strategic buyer that understands your niche and what you're doing and they have the resources. A lot of times they will be able to do the deal a lot quicker and conform to some of the criteria that you have internally. So that's a really great takeaway that the deal can be done quickly if you're dealing with the right type of motivation and the right type of buyer as well as a seller that's motivated so that's a great takeaway i appreciate the perspective you've brought to the table here today dennis i appreciate your willingness to take the time if they wanted to reach out to you anyone in our audience wanted to reach out to you and get a hold of you how would they do that
2: um you can easily find me on linkedin i am also with chapman associates website is www.chapman-usa.com um, and my email address is dbuck at chapman-usa.com.
1: Okay, well, they can get a hold of you, website, email, or find you on LinkedIn. That's great. I appreciate you taking the time again here. And for everyone in our audience, thank you for attending this episode and listening in. And we'll see you on our next episode of Business Exit Stories.
0: Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.